Salon Talks. I'm Diana. And I'm Doll. And I'm Sam. And today we're going to talk about conspiracy theories in the Wheel of Time. I will say at the top that this entire episode is going to contain spoilers. So if you have not finished the series, turn us off, read all of the books, and then come back. And it will be a good discussion. That is your first and final warning. Let's kick us off with talking about some older conspiracy theories today. Um, for starters, who killed Asmodian? That was the big question when I first started reading the series. It's like all anybody could ask about. There were so many wild theories. I thought it was Elida for a long time because oh. she was there in Camelin, and I thought she was Black Aja, but that was wrong. She was just really crazy. That's uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> really early on, I thought it was uh, Demandred because, you know, he had been playing hooky so far. I mean, you know, there are some Forsaken we don't even meet until book seven, book eight and stuff like that. But I think the fandom was talking about Demandred a lot at that time because he hadn't really made an appearance. Nobody really knew much about him. And I think at that point he had either in the Fires of Heaven or Lord of Chaos, he had that intro going to Sheogul. And that was really the most that we had seen of him. So I was just like, I bet he did it. I bet he did it. Because it was either going to be him or Moradin. I also thought it was Demondred. Although I will be honest, when I first read these books, I was so young and moving so quickly and very distracted by Moiraine falling through the red um, arc at that point. Or the red, yeah, the red gateway. Uh, that I honestly did not clock that Osmodian was dead. <laughs> The first time that I read the books, I was like, Rand, I was like, where did he go? Because it was very quick and it was just like, oh, no, it's you. And then we never hear from him again. So you it, I guess if you don't pick up on it, you wouldn't think he's dead. But I think I just assumed that we would find out where he went after that, because it didn't read as being dead to me the first time I read it. I think Jordan actually confirmed that he was dead in interviews that I'm like, oh, that that was a death scene. I mean, I totally can visualize the sequence of, you know, shot of him in a room. I think he's in the tent or something like that. And the flap opens and you just see a shadow cast across the floor. And he looks up and he goes, oh, no, it's you. And then, you know, cut to black. And it's just like, OK. Yeah, it was a hallway in the, the castle in Camelot. He opens a door and goes, it's you. And then fade to black. OK, that's right. Yeah. On rereading it, it's pretty clear that he's Balefired just based on like context clues from other ways that Balefired had been described. But at the time, it's like not obvious at all. Um, and I only was like, oh, of course he was Balefired because I was looking for it. Um, so definitely, I mean, on first reread, I didn't even realize he was dead. So, you know, there's that. Um, but like now looking at it, it's like, okay, so whoever killed him had to be able to channel, had to know how to do Balefire. So that narrows it down a bunch um, as to who it could have been. Um, and I think Jordan at one point said in interviews that it should have been obvious and that it couldn't have been anybody who wasn't previously introduced so then that also narrows down the possibility of killers yeah because after that point i started to look at you know shadowy presence so it could have been someone like uh mogadine because she likes to operate in the shadows so that was probably the next person i moved to if it wasn't going to be demandred i think i thought it was shut off her one for the longest time i don't know why i've heard that theory too actually that, that it was him that he just kind of moved in and because you know oh no it's you yeah oh no it's you like you're coming to tell me i felt 
It wasn't until, I think Jordan said somebody had figured it out. He was going to give more clues, and then he found a blog where somebody figured it out. And so, like, everybody in the fandom was scouring everybody's blog trying to find it. Because he said it included maps and diagrams. There was a blog where somebody had taken, and they'd drawn the locations of all the characters in Camelon. And they had a diagram of how Grandal could have been walking down the hallway here, ducked into a closet after everybody else passed, and then came back out and then got back into the room. So when Asmodian came in, she was there waiting for him. And I was like, oh, that's it, isn't it? So now I don't remember who it was or what site it was on. Boy, wish we could find that blog. If we can find it, we'll include it in the show notes because I definitely want to look at that in doing some research. Um saw someone be like, it's obviously Grendel. And then was like, okay, cool. <laughs> this person's figured it out. And then didn't read further. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, we kind of buried the lead. It is it is Mama Grendel um, who has murdered, who murders Asmodian. Um, and I have to say, I love that for her. So Grendel is my favorite uh, Forsaken um, far and away. And so the fact that she murders Asmodian, I'm like, just another check in her amazing box. Going back to the whole idea of um, Damon Dread doing it, there were the longest time when everybody thought Taim was Damon Dread. Yeah, I guess it kind of kind of slid that way a little bit with me for a while because that would have been easy for him to get close to Asmodian and just do it. So it kind of it just kind of made sense in terms of logistics. Yeah, so it was the easiest thing to kind of go. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. For a long time, I assumed that Taim was Demon Dread, and I actually was kind of annoyed when I learned that Robert Jordan was like originally planning that. And then I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand the story, he was planning on it. Too many fans guessed it. He got miffed and he changed it. I believe that is the common belief. I don't know if he ever confirmed that that was. He did say one time. That was something that he thought was clever that fans figured out. I don't know if he confirmed that it was time being damaged red or not, but everybody just assumes that's what he was talking about. It's the easiest connection because just because of how he acted, everything that happened in the Black Tower later on. The way that Lewis Theron reacts to him. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at what happened with Demandred later on in the series where he just kind of pops up from Shara with all these Sharon worries, there is absolutely zero lead up to this. At all, they make a handful of mentions throughout the latter half of the series of well, not even not even that. I think Demandred like mentions Shara like twice or something like that. And reading back on it now, it's like okay, well, I guess that makes sense now. But reading it the first time, you you, you come into it and he just he shows up with an army from the other side of the world, and everybody's just like okay. So it kind of feeds into that. It really does. And without any context, it feels like he said, I have to put him somewhere else now. Where can that be? Oh, I know. The other side of the world that we know nothing about. Yeah, I only like that because, like, we also have Semarag in Shanchan just, like, messing up and murdering everybody um, in classic Semarag fashion. But otherwise, like, and we at least, like, had hints that that was going on and Shanchan actually is important in the rest of the series. It's, I, otherwise I cannot stand the way that Demon Dread just shows up out of the blue, screams for Lewis Theron for 20 minutes, <laughs> murders Egwene. Also, I don't like it because he is indirectly responsible for the death of Egwene, um, which makes me sad. 
And so I don't like that he shows up, shouts, is irrelevant, kills Gawain, almost kills Galad, and then is killed by Lan. And it's like, this was such a nothing burger. Like, this is so weird. <laughs> but because of that, Lan gets the best line in the series, by far. You're going to have to refresh me. Oh, he says, I didn't come here to win. I came to kill you. That is a very cool line. I have a quibble that that's the best line in the series, but we'll talk about that later this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree that that is a very cool line. It's a very cool Lan moment, for sure. I wish we had just had Mazram Taim be Demon Dread. Also, Mazram Taim is the only person we see raised to be a Forsaken, which is kind of cool, but also very random. And it's like, okay, so you wanted this guy to be a Forsaken, so then you had to shoehorn away for him to be one. It's just, if it's one of the few plot points in this series that I think is really poorly done. I guess it kind of makes sense because he survived for like, what, 15 years using the power without going mad. So I always assumed that he had protection from the taint, which is why he was able to survive so long because he showed like no signs of madness whatsoever. And you also had with the death of Esmodine by Balefire, the loss of a Forsaken. Yeah, but at that point they'd lost at least a couple. Uh, like Moiraine Balefire's Belal in the third book, just out of the blue. Yeah, he's lost a few. So he's like, I'm starting to get a little short on Forsaken here. I need to start building back up. They can't all be Asengar and Arangar. I call them the Chaos Twins, even though they're not twins. That's what they are in my head. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, they are twins. Like, True. They're brought back the same way at the same time. Should we talk about newer conspiracy theories from the end of the series? Yes, let's talk about the three unanswered questions. Let's start with Nakomi. Nakomi shows up when Avienda is outside of Ruidian, and we don't really get much information on her. She just sort of shows up at the fireside, boils some tea, cooks a meal out of nowhere, pulls it out of a magic box, like a microwave, and tells Avienda she's got to take care of the Aiel. And then we suspect she shows up again when Rand is leaving Shao Gu. Do we have a confirmation that that's actually her? I don't think so. Yeah, I definitely assumed that that was Nakomi. Yeah. So we're pretty sure we've seen Nakomi twice. Everybody thinks she looks familiar, but nobody can quite place who she is. She's done magical things, but nobody can sense her using the power. And nobody knows where she came from. There have been a lot of theories about who she is over the years. I think Brandon has shot down the theory that it's Avienda from the future in the world of dreams, like showing up in their dreams as they drifted off to sleep or something like that. And I've heard a couple of other theories, but I sort of started speculating on my own theory after we talked to Michael Livingston. And I think it fits very well because of what we talked about and the way Robert Jordan did things. She's obviously sort of outside the pattern and maybe not the avatar of the true power, but not the true power. The one power. The one power, yes. Yes, <laughs> not, the, not the dark one. The one power, the light, the avatar of the light. but. I think this is Robert Jordan's self-insert. He has a tendency to gender swap everything. It's a wise woman that kind of knows everything and seems a little lighthearted and clever. It very much sounds like a female version of Robert Jordan. A little bit older. Can't quite put a finger on why you know who she is and why she knows everything and why she can do things she shouldn't be able to. Well, if she's creating the series, then she's the one that's going to know what's going to happen in the future. And Robert Jordan's just like, 
hey, in the future, when I'm gone and you're telling new stories, these stories need to continue to treat the, these characters correctly because in the past we have done them wrong since the Aiel are very much Native Americans, not totally, they're sort of Irish, sort of Native Americans, but a more marginalized community. We need to do them correct in the future. I don't know if that's on purpose, but it fits nicely in my head. I think Macomi is Robert Jordan. This just sprung to the top of my head, but if it's not Robert Jordan, what if it's Harriet? Oh, God. I think you've just changed my mind. Either one of those theories is going to make me cry. <laughs> I'll literally never be able to read a Nakomi scene again. He's always said that every woman in the book is a little bit of Harriet. Oh, maybe this just is Harriet. Oh, God. I think you've just changed my mind entirely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm like tearing up, you guys, literally, like right now. <laughs> Outside of these two wild theories, I, I have heard a couple of other things. One of them was like, what if it's Teleron Rio'd version of Varen? Would that mean that Varen is a hero for the Horn? Not necessarily. Because she would have been dead. Because this would be like the other way. Like, you know how Brigida comes out later, she comes back as a hero. Brigida was in the because she's a hero of the horn and that's where the heroes go when they're waiting to be reborn and the only way that Varen would be there after she died is if she was attached to the horn yeah and the only reason that i kind of entertained this a little bit is because um the stuff that nakomi talks about Varen had a kind of somewhat similar conversation like way 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 earlier in the series so it kind of gives a little bit of credit to that theory but at the same time i think there was something i wish i would have uh wrote down a couple of notes on this but um i think varin is still alive when nakomi appears not in shaogul not in shaogul that would have been well after she died right that's after the last battle that's like very very end so there's also the theory that I believe how the scene goes is Avienda is, you know, at the fire and whatever. And she just kind of, I think she closes her eyes for a second. So a lot of people think that she's actually just in the world of dreams. And this is somebody from the world of dreams talking to her. That's not somebody that exists in Randland or whatever. I think most people believe that this all happens outside of reality, if not in Teleron real and in some other form of broken reality or broken pattern that she slips into. The only other one that I'm aware of, but only because uh, Brandon Sanderson answered a question about this one. Someone asked if Nakomi was Jin Ail, and Brandon's response to that was, you're sniffing under the right tree. So I don't know what that means, to be honest. I also think I read somewhere where he said that Nakomi is not a character we know. Okay, so if that's the case, then that throws the whole Varen thing just out the window. I, I like my theory. My new theory, I came up all by myself. It's Harriet. I love that. I'm going to laugh if it comes out and it is, in, in fact, Harriet. <laughs> Michael Livingston will be like, they scooped me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that or something like Maria or Alan or something like that, you know? I love that. I love those theories. I've always assumed that she was an avatar of the creator, but I think Brandon Sanderson shot that down at one point. And then as soon as that got shot down, I was like, well, okay, I'll learn eventually. So what about the body swap? How does Rand swap bodies with Moradin? I've talked to a lot of people about this one over the years. And, you know, everybody seems confused by it. Like, they don't understand the logistics of how it worked. And I've, I've read into it a lot in the past and, you know, over the last couple of days just to prep for this. And I feel like I've kind of reached a clarity with it that, to me, it just makes absolute crystal clear sense. But I could just be crazy. 
But we know that when Rand is fighting Samael in Shader Logoth, Moradin and Rand, they both cast a beam of Balefire, and those beams cross. They cross the streams. Yeah, they, they cross the streams. You never cross the streams. And at that point, their souls became intertwined because of how Balefire works, basically. So that, that is basically the answer to how the body swap happened. Because after that, they could sense each other, you know, like a warder to an Aes Sedai could. Morden hated it so much. And you'll see a few more scenes throughout the series where Rand gets pulled under the dream spike where Morden is. And they kind of have this back and forth conversation of... You know, how'd you get here? Heck, if I know, I just kind of fell asleep and here I am, you know, in front of you. So they have a nice long conversation about it. And they're just like, you know, something must have happened with the bale fire, right? So we move forward to the end of the series and we're at the big climactic battle at Sheogul. We all know that Morden really just wants to die and the Dark One won't let him die. Ishmael gets put into the new body. He's Morden now. He is so far gone and they describe that he's so far gone because he's, you know, his his eyes are basically black at this point because of all the saw. Like he is just channeled so much for so long that he is basically insane and he can't do anything to get away with it because the Dark One's like, nah, I need you. You're my number one. You're my nameless without actually calling him that. So when all that happens and he uses Morden to kind of do his thing to close the boar and everything, and Rand is pulling him out of the cave, because how do, how do they do it? I'm, I'm trying to remember. I haven't read the ending in a long time because I'm rereading the books right now. So I was, tr- I was trying not to read the whole battle at Sheogul again. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going off a little bit of fuzzy memory here. So um, I think when Morden tried to use Kalendor to stop everyone, Nynaeve exploited the flaw in Kalendor to basically trap him in a link, because that was the flaw of Kalendor, basically, is that it's a really powerful song, Griel, but you can basically force somebody into a link with it. And that's what they did, and they kind of trapped him, and they used his ability to channel the true power without the ill effects, you know, the ill side effects of doing so, right? And in doing so, that kind of merged them together a little bit more. So we're here at the end. Rand is pulling Morden's dying body out. He still has access to the true power, thanks to the Link. We have heard in previous conversations with the Dark One or Shadar Haran, as long as a body has, or as long as a soul hasn't been bail fired, using the true power, he can just take that soul and drop it to another empty vessel. Morden wants nothing more than to die. His body is dying. Rand's body is basically a broken mess at this point, too. And as they're pulling himself out of Sheogul, Rand's like, oh yeah, I can totally do this thing. And so what he does is use the true power, and he swaps bodies because Morden doesn't want to fight. He just wants to die, right? So he doesn't even attempt an effort at trying to fight Rand pulling his soul out of his body and placing his own soul into that vessel instead. So that's where the body swap happens. And basically that's how it happens. It only happens because Morden doesn't want to live anymore. And he's like, I can finally just die. I've heard a lot of theories about it over the years that could have gone a a dozen different ways of it wasn't what Rand wanted. It just kind of happened as kind of a side effect to sealing the boar. It just kind of, everything got jumbled up because of how they were linked together and it just kind of threw them into each other's bodies and stuff like that. Not really a conspiracy theory. It's just, I think, getting all of the pieces in order that that really makes it hard to understand. 
I definitely think Rand consented to it. I have always thought that it had something to do with how he lit the pipe, which we will talk about in a hot second. But I've completely forgotten that it's the true power that lets the Dark One take somebody's soul and pop it into another body. So I really like that explanation a lot. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it only works because their souls were linked thanks to that balefire crossfire like otherwise it wouldn't have worked that is the only reason that it worked because you got a single thread coming out that's kind of connecting them together so he just goes i'm just gonna slide along this line and move over here wouldn't have worked if morden had put up a fight if he had put up a fight it probably wouldn't have worked and they would have both just died i agree yeah because rand really wanted to live and morden really wanted to die and rand's body was dying and morden's body was fine so and oh yeah yeah that's right calendor also amplifies the true power. So that really, really helped out his case. It's a very, very powerful Sangreal. What a wild Sangreal that also amplifies the true power. A power that I'm not even sure that they knew existed? Well, I think that was what Lanfear was looking for when she bore the home. That's true. The thing is, is I don't think anybody knew that it amplified the true power until Morden picked it up and he goes, Oh, Oh. Yeah, because I, I think I looked through some, some stuff on Calendor recently, and I saw where Brandon was hinting at that before the last book came out, but he wouldn't say. He just raffled it because <laughs> he was like, there's something more in Calendor that, that I can't talk about, but you'll find out in the last book. Yeah, because that is definitely one of those things that is never before that scene mentioned at all. I guess the thing is, which is the flaw, that you can force someone into a link or that the flaw is that it amplifies the true power? Because I would consider that a flaw. I think that was the flaw. And I think the flaw may have been the dark one reaching out in the manufacturing process through the hole in the prison during the war of power, right? Yes. Yeah, it was made while male channelers were going mad, so that would track. And Robert Jordan said that Kalimdor was just one of hundreds, if not thousands, of very similar Songreal that were created during the World of Power, and the only thing that was special about it was a certain flaw. He didn't say what the flaw was at that point. So there you have it. The flaw is, according to us, no need to source, that it can amplify the true power. We only sort of check our sources on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> So uh, Rand used Kalidor to channel so much of the true power through Moradin because he had the shield on it that even the Dark One was just like, uh, I can't turn it off. And that's how the stuff was done. Is it a bug or a feature? Seems kind of like a feature if you use it to, to win the last battle. Yeah. You can turn any bug into a feature if you use it correctly. If you're Rand and you try hard enough. I, you know, I want to say it's a conspiracy theory. For a long time, I was kind of like in that kind of conspiracy th- camp of, you know, oh, it could have been this, it could have been that. It could have been that. And, but when I really started to look into it, it was, oh, it was um, not really a conspiracy after all. It's just a lot of people not connecting all of the dots, which admittedly are not, you know, one, two, three, four, five. That is a master level game of connect the dots there. Just going to say, like, it's not, not just, you know, outlining a little sheep or something. No, because it's it's over the course of like five or six books. And, you know, on your first time through, you know, you miss so much stuff. Like, I, I want to meet the person who picks up on everything on their first read through. Because if they say they do, I say they're reading the wiki now. Yeah, it's also 
consistent with how Robert Jordan built his mysteries where like they go over several books, but there's little hints along the way and little bread crumbs that like once you're, it's, it's very similar to the Grendel killed Asmodian conspiracy theory or mystery. Um, so I, I like that a lot. Do we know what Brandon has, Brandon Sanderson, probably should not just call him Brandon. I obviously do not know this man as a friend. <laughs> um, do we know what Brandon Sanderson has said on, on how they did it? He actually confirmed to somebody on Reddit that Morden's soul and body got connected when their bale fire crossed in Shadow Logoth. So when it came to the body swap, the soul that wanted to live went into the good body and the soul that wanted to die went into the bad body. So yes. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know he had answered that one. I mean, that's not like a that's not like an answer of how. Well, I mean, it just kind of makes sense with Rand is still connected to the true power even after sealing the boar. He has access to it just just because of the nature of uh, Kalendor, and you know, Sheogul is basically coming down around their heads, and he's like, "I've got this power, and you know, I'm dying. My body is dying." And he sees Morden basically passed out on the floor and he's just like i can feel that his body is fine and um you know this is well well after the merging with uh loose theron that i think it's just one of those things of he you know whenever he remembers a weave that he doesn't know how to do and he just immediately knows how to do it i think it was just one of those situations of oh i can just take the one power and just move my soul I can't remember. Does that have anything to do with the very grumpy female channeler who's supposed to help him die? I can't remember her name. I think she's a former Sean Chan. I think she's a former Domine. I think that's how I'm going to pronounce that. Oh, you're not talking about Alana. No, not Alana. I would never bring up Alana. I hate her. No, there's a former Domine who is incredibly strong and she is prophesied to help Rand die. I mean, I always saw that as because, you know, after after the body swap happens, she's there with basically a survival pack of here you go. Now go on your way. Like she helped him just get out of Dodge after all of that happened. So I feel like it's one of those, you know, she did help him die, not by literally spilling his blood on the rocks of Sheogul. That's literally one of the lines of the prophecy. But she basically set him up to get him out of the situation so she did help him die yeah i mean she certainly helped his body die i can't remember her name i'm trying to remember her name as we as we know names me and names all i remember is that she is like a 400 year old damani or something like that like she is old yeah she's super old she's super strong and she is insanely grumpy i remember (laughs) she's so mean to everyone except rand and i'm like okay Olivia, but it's not spelled as you think. It's A-L-I-V-I-A. Yeah, she helps him disappear. She helps him die. That's how I always inferred that. But with that body swap that happens, they're burning dead Morden on, on the funeral pyre or whatever in Rand's body. We see something happen, don't we? Yep. He lights a pipe and he doesn't channel to do so. Sanderson has confirmed that he did not use the one power or the true power. The reason I was asking if Sanderson had said anything about the body swap is because when I was looking into this, I saw that Sanderson said he doesn't, he also doesn't know how Rand does this because this scene was written by Robert Jordan himself when he knew he wouldn't finish the series. He wrote it, gave it to Harry and was like, this is the final scene of the book of the series. Um, And so for this one, I am not sure if we're ever going to get an answer. Maybe Harriet knows. Genuinely unsure. But 
This one is one of my favorites to theorize on because this it kind of feels a little bit cool but obvious to me how he does it. I think that in his fight with the Dark One in accessing the true power using all the one power, that fight happens outside of the pattern. And Rand had been already, I call him Enlightened Rand, post-Enlightenment essentially on Dragon Mount. He'd already been very connected with the world. You can see that in his mood. As his moods are darkening, the world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket. And then once he becomes enlightened, the weather around him is a, like a clear, perfect circle. So he'd already been art, like very tied to the world and tied to the pattern. And then I think in fighting the Dark One, I feel like he stepped outside of the pattern and had sort of a Neo in the Matrix moment. Now, when Neo's in the Matrix, he can see all the ones and zeros. I feel like Rand now, post-final battle, post-last battle, can see the weaves of the pattern and can modify them to suit his whims, which is wildly powerful. But he's Rand. He's just a sweet sheep herder. He just wants to go and read books. And smoke his pipe. And be a sheep herder and smoke his pipe. And so rather than annihilating the world he will just you know he'll like pick at the at the pattern just to to light a pipe so what you're saying is he just turns air into fire basically but like not through any source of the power yeah he just he'll he'll take a little strand of of the pattern and he'll be like you know this this surely won't have a butterfly effect and we'll just change that thread and have himself a lit pipe well if he's enlightened rand and he sees reality in a whole new way i think he would be able to anticipate a butterfly effect right right you would think you would think I like that idea a lot. I guess I thought of that on a like super rudimentary level. Was it say in the book? He just kind of wills it into existence, and I go, "Oh yeah, he can just change it." Yep, he wills it into existence because he tweaks the pattern because he can modify the pattern now. I feel like at some point the creator, even though he's very hands off, it's like one of the most hands off deities I've ever seen in any fantasy book. I do feel like at some point probably would have stepped in, but he trusts Rand and the dragon so much that he's like, nope, you just go, you live your life, you tweak the pattern, you pass on. Who's to say the creator even noticed? True, honestly. Rand's just being like, I'm just going to like light a fire here or there. I mean, I'm, what, what I'm saying is, how do, we, how do we know that the creator is even paying attention to the world, right? We have no idea. I mean, if he doesn't say anything about all the threads that were cut by all the bale fire that was being thrown around, is he really going to say something about a couple of strands of fire? Or does he say something by way of Egwene and the way that she fixes all of that? He's like, and I'm just going to drop this person here when they are necessary, give them this ability when they are necessary. I feel like the creator is paying attention, but is tweaking the pattern in such small ways, like this person relearns this weave at this time, this person gets access to that that he's like a very, very soft touch. Maybe the flaw in Kalendor wasn't the dark one. Could have been the creator all along. Does this kind of reach a level of the creator and the dark one are like opposing equal forces and Rand is that kind of little teeter that just offsets it enough for, you know, everything to happen? It's so funny because I've never considered the dark one and the creator to be polar opposites because they never fight. They never fight because they can't defeat each other, right? They're they're like ultimate equals. Like creation versus destruction. 
Right. There's a whole trilogy of books on that called Mistborn. You should go read it. It's been a minute since I've read Mistborn, and I really the only thing I remember is the magic system. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's kind of more or less that. You know, generally when there are cosmic like level entities like that, that always seems to be the case of they exist and they can't. They're kind of they can't do anything to each other, so they have to use stuff below them to offset it enough just to give them that kind of iota of power over the other one just to give like a domino effect and i think that's what rand was does the dark one ever actually talk to rand obviously it's ishamael in the first three books does the dark one talk to rand yeah like it's ishamael in the first three books at the end of the book he's talking to him at the end of the book it's just like so it's such a strange dichotomy to me that this like massive evil entity would be like hi little person i'm going to speak to you but the creator never does the same to like moradin not that we get a lot of moradin point of view they interact with the world in such a different way that it's tough for me to wrap my brain around them being opposite but equal in the same way that the creator is creation and the dark one is destruction the creator is also free will and darkness is domination so it's not really the creator's path to force people to choose the right thing. It just gives them what they need to do it. Yeah, it's kind of a very hands-off thing. That really goes back to how Jordan incorporates world religions, because there really is a theme in especially Eastern religions of a hands-off creator who gives you the pieces that you need to do the right thing and the destructor who tries to flub you up. And that makes sense since obviously the whole religion of Wheel of Time is based on a very Eastern religious mindset. So to answer your question, Rand can just change physics on the fly, right? Yep. But he does it in very small doses because he is a sweet boy. (laughs) Sweet little sheep herder. He's he's done his job. He just wants to rest. And you know what? He has earned it. He's so earned it. Let that man sleep without pain in his side. Well, he doesn't have that pain in his side anymore. Yeah, because that body's gone. Didn't they mention that he still has the fleck in his eye for Morden's body. I forget. They mentioned that they see a small fleck, but I don't know if it was the same as the saw. See, that's that's another question. I just don't remember. I, it could be. Could be. It's been too long since I've read that line. Yeah. It's definitely there. Something is definitely there. Even if it's just a little flicker. That could also go back to the balance between creation and destruction. And there's a little bit of both in each side's yeah, because, you know, if you look at any time that they have the disc, it's always pure black and pure white with never the little fleck of white mm-hmm. in the black and vice versa. They were basically equals and they couldn't really, you know, the light and the dark couldn't do anything to each other. So, you know, Morden was basically that speck of black and the white and Rand was that speck of white and black kind of thing. And now Rand has that little speck of Morden in him. Yeah. I love that we get hints of the body swap before it happens, because when Avienda sees her children, she has children who have black hair. And I was like, why would Avienda have children with black hair? And then, like, I was like, oh, oh, because she has kids with Mord and Rand. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because she's not pregnant yet. Right, she's not pregnant. She's, And I don't think she and Rand, other than sex glue. Sex glue? All right, the igloo in the middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere, Shanshan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that they don't have sex before the the last battle. So I've always assumed that Mord and Rand gets her pregnant. It's it's hard to remember when stuff like that happens because Jordan was always very like off screen with Mm -hmm. it. It's very PG thirteen. You see everything right up until the lights go off. Yeah. 
You know, fu- funny, funny that you do mention that though, because I rem- I do remember reading that and going, huh, but they're both redheads. Mm-hmm. And they're both like, like Rand is half Aiel and his non-Aiel side is a redhead and Avienda is pure Aiel. So yeah, yeah they should have red-haired babies. But I think she has, I think it's two and two. That struck me as odd until we got the body swap scene. And then I was like, my brain exploded. Hey, you learn something new every day. And look at that, learning something new. That's what this podcast is for. We learn from each other. I know. I learn something new every time we talk. Same. And I've read these books, I don't know how many times. I've only read the last one once because it was such an emotional roller coaster. It tears you apart. It, it tears you apart. I, I, I think the next day my face was just like puffy red. I've only read the last book twice. And every time it's brutal. The last time I read the book, the last book was summer of 2020. So it was a dark time. Somehow very comforting. Do we have any other small conspiracy theories? One does wonder how a little shaggy horse from the two rivers ends up traveling the entire world only to die in the last battle. And get revived in the companion. I love that the companion revives her. Justice for Bella. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I read that Harriet was the one who was like, Bella must die. The way she tells it, Brandon wrote a scene in which it would have been impossible for Bella to have survived. And she said, you cannot do this. You know, it's okay. She can be there. But if you put her in this situation, she will die. And Brandon's like, I can't do that. So Harriet took her editorial copy and wrote in comma and then died. (laughs) So Harriet did kill her. As an editor, I appreciate that. I think the story also follows that after she did that, she felt bad enough about it that in the companion, they reversed the decision, basically. I want to say I heard that at Jordan Con one year. I feel like that was said during the after the book release when on the panel. She was like, and then I felt bad because I love Bella. Bella's <laughs> <laughs> the best. I mean, I remember several panels over the years just called Is Bella a Dark Friend? No, Bella is the creator. Yeah, that's what the bumper stickers said. <laughs> did you ever see the bumper stickers they did? No, I never I saw them online. I've never seen them in person. I have some of them at home. But they one of them is Bella's a dark friend. And uh, there's another one that says, I killed Asmodine. No, Bella is the creator. Bella is the avatar of the creator. (laughs) I don't think I have any more questions. Listeners, if you have more conspiracy theories or questions that you want us to answer, feel free to reach out to us at producer.tvt at gmail.com. Or leave us a comment on the thread for questions on the site. Our next segment is Ask Tarwan Talks. If you have a question for us, please reach out to producerpvt at gmail.com or you can post in our Ask Tarwan Talks thread in the general forums on the boards. I apologize because I am going to butcher this name. Um, but novice Ryan? Rin? Rin Alhut. Sorry, I did not say that correctly. Um, says, first time caller, first time listener, I would love to hear your speculation on if slash how Rand and the Dark One will be depicted, quote unquote, fighting in the sky, or will Rafe potentially skip over such an awesome plot point? Would love to hear your thoughts. We have thoughts. So many thoughts. Go first. What are your thoughts? I just, I know that they have increased the budget for the CGI coming up, which is great to hear. I didn't know that. That's thumbs up. 
I think I heard that. I, I heard that as well. Rafe said it in one of the interviews at one point mm-hmm. that they had yeah. to increase their budget after the first season came out. So they would have better CGI, which makes me think that they are planning to do something a little more spectacular and we're going to see something. It may not be as epic as what's in our heads, but I think we'll see something. Yeah, I think that it will depend very much on where Falma, and that's how that's how I say it, by the way. I kind of skirt the middle ground between May and then having none. Um, I think it'll very much depend on if the Battle of Falma is episode is like in the midpoint of the series or the end of the series or the, the season, not the series. We're not, that's not the end of the series. Um, midpoint of the season or the end of the season. Cause I don't think it makes sense to do it as a, it, like there's no such thing as a mid season finale when you're streaming a show. Um, and it doesn't feel like it would make sense to put it and then have other stuff, major plot points come after it because it's so epic. Um, so if Falma is the final battle of season two, then I think we are going to get some version of it. I don't, I'm very, I'll be very curious to see how they do it because, so this is a scene that I did have to go back and reread because it had been so long. And my understanding of the scene was completely incorrect. I thought that Rand and the Dark Ones battle was projected essentially onto the mists. I did not understand that for some reason the mists from the Horn of Valir take Rand into the sky and that's where Ishamayo fights him, which is very strange. Never again does that happen, but sure, sure, Horn of Valir. Um, And so because of that, I was like, oh, it's very interesting. And we know that we're going to be getting an on-the-ground look at the Battle of Falma, which we don't get in the book. Um, so I'm wondering if we'll see, like, if we'll kind of come, cut back and forth, like Rand and Ishamayel fighting and then people on the ground seeing it. Um, but I, again, I only think we're going to get that if it's episodes, I think we're only getting eight episodes again this season. So if it's either episode seven or eight, um, I will say that I want it because when I first read the series way, way back when the first thing of Wheel of Time merch I wanted was a one of those like scraps of paper of of cloth that have it painted. It's like I want that and I want that I want that show merch. Amazon, hear me. If you do that in the sky, I want that show merch really, really badly. I think it would be amazing. Yeah, I agree. And Amazon, please listen. I could see them running it mid to late season, if not a season finale, because they kinda have said that they're meshing thread lines together and you know we kind of still don't know what that means if anything to go by on season one you know some things will change some things will stay the same if they do the whole side thread with Masima, if they don't cut Masima out it'll definitely need to happen and i wouldn't believe that they would put it at the end of the season to lead into the third season because we again we don't know where they're going to go or what's going to happen because you can't go in expecting all the stuff that happened in book one we've got Perrin uh, hunting down Fane to get the dagger and the horn basically so that whole thread line is open i believe that them hunting for the horn happens leading up to you know the battle of Falm, correct yeah because it's the hunt for the horn yeah and the dagger yeah because the dagger is with the but we don't have we don't have the urgency of we need the dagger because some 
something, you know, Matt needs it or whatever, because, you know, we don't know what's going on with him. I'm sure we'll find out at the beginning of the season. So it's kind of kind of hard to guess. I I thought I I honestly thought that it was probably going to happen mid-season. Like they were going to put it in and then some other stuff was going to happen and then like the end of season 1 they're going to be like, "All right, this stuff happened. Now here comes like the Sean Chan again, right?" Mm, I don't think cuz the Sean Chan get driven out so in the battle of Thong. I'm, I'm i'm sorry not them coming back but you know a situation like the sean chan of you know the, the the next thing shows up at the end of the season to you know hook you into season three if if we did the battle of Thong in the middle of you guys have me saying fall now <laughs> of uh, the middle of the season i think we would end the season either okay sorry i think we would end the season at viridian and I think that we would skip tier. I'm going back to my we skip tier theory because to do Falma and tier in one season would be bananas plotline wise. It's it would be too much escalation too quickly. Well, I mean, what if they ended the season on sacking tier? And then you start season three at the be- with sacking tier. I don't think that makes sense plotline wise. I don't think that makes sense from a show running perspective. Like you typically would. Well, wanna- I'm not a show runner, so full disclosure, I do not watch a lot of TV. I watch too much TV, way too much TV. But I don't think you would end on a battle and then have what a year and a half of no show. And then you pick it up at the battle again. That would just kind of be really unsatisfying for viewers. I think that they're going to end it somewhere else. I think that ending on Falma is, it makes a, a lot of sense. Ending on the battle itself? Yeah. 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 Okay. There's also a, several things that happen in that battle that are super crucial to Rand's plotline. That's where he gets stabbed. That's where he gets the the original weapon, uh, injury from the Dark One or from Michelle right. That's also where he gets branded the second time. And they didn't do... I don't remember when he gets branded the first time. Is it in the end of the Eye of the World? Yes, it is. Yeah. So we've skipped that branding. So, And I really want them to do the branding. That is maybe my favorite part of the prophecy is that he's branded twice with a heron and then twice, twice with a dragon. Yeah, because it, it was like, you know, once for... It was like once for something, two for confirmation, basically. Yeah, I thought that that language is beautiful, and I love when it happens. I get chills every time I read it. And you know, we've had the the I cannot say the cycle's name correctly. Carathian cycle. It's Car- Carathian. Carathian. Yeah, something Carathian. close like that. Yeah, I think we've had it mentioned. It's in the show. They've talked about yeah. it. So, because that's the book that Rand is reading um, in the library when he meets Loyal. And so maybe at some point we'll actually hear the prophecy. And if we hear the prophecy, then I would assume that they would also then need to do the prophecy. What if they open up season two, episode one with the prophecy? I would love that. I would love that to have Rosamund Pike reading the prophecy. Did we get much of it at Earth any in the first no. season? I don't remember I don't any think. at all. The part, the fact that it just, well, no, that was in the Origins episodes. Oh, you're right. They were. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like we've kind of sh- shifted hard away from the actual question, which was, is the battle in the sky going to happen? Will they do it in the so sky? So I think they will. Yes, I am coming down on they will. I agree. I, yeah, I, I think they will only because that sets everything into motion. It sets everything in motion. It sets up Rand as the hero. And it's just an epic scene and a epic image. It's also actually a comprehensible scene for all that I made fun of it earlier. Unlike the end of the Eye of the World, which I read that and my head hurts. 
It doesn't make that sense. That is a bonkers. Incomprehensible. I think I read that scene at least five times every time I read Eye of the World. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> In and out of the world of dreams and like, oh, hey, Perrin. And then he's like teleporting everywhere. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. He's like randomly in Tarwin's gap. It's it's nuts. It's nuts. The the battle in the sky is a much cleaner scene and a cleaner visual. And way cooler. Way cooler. Way cooler. Also with the battle in Falm, we do well, I mean, she's earlier in the book, but we basically get confirmation of Lanfear at the end of the second book. Because you know, she's Celine up and through. And we don't know it's Lanfear. And then at the end of the second book, Lanfear's like, hey, men, take care of Rand because I'm coming back oh, for him. Yeah, that scene is so good. Also, we do kind of need the battle in the sky. You mentioned Elida. That's how she knows it's Rand because that's what everybody is talking about for basically the next book or two of, hey, you see that crazy thing in the sky? That red haired kid fighting the, you know, the dark one? Yeah, it's basically his coming out as the dragon. I'm sorry. I just had this image of Rand walking in a pride parade with his dragon banner because he came out as the dragon. <laughs> you just need Mazram Taim walking by with his with his blue gold dragons. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He's more outed than like willingly comes out. Poor Rand. Oh, man. If I go to a pride parade next year and someone is dressed in Randolph or cosplay with a dragon banner behind them, my heart will soar. <laughs> <laughs> someone do this. <laughs> If you want us to answer any other questions or burning questions that you have about the Wheel of Time, feel free to reach out to us to, at producer.tvt at gmail.com or drop by tarvalon.net and ask us in the Ask Tarvalon Talks thread and drop your questions. We would love to see them. In this segment, our hosts will take turns telling us about their favorite moments from the book. Please be warned that this segment may contain spoilers. If you have not finished reading the book, I suggest you stop listening now and join us next time. So we are going to talk today about my favorite scene. Um, as I have mentioned previously, my favorite character is Egwene. And as I have also mentioned on a previous episode, my least favorite character is Elida. So it should come as no surprise that my favorite scene in the series is when Egwene absolutely roasts Elida with truly the most brutal insult in the entire series, which I'm going to read directly because I'm not going to try and paraphrase. It's so epic. I dare the truth, Elida. You are a coward and a tyrant. I'd name you a dark friend as well, but I suspect that the dark one would perhaps be embarrassed to associate with you. It's so brutal. That's pretty good. You are so awful that even the dark one wants nothing to do with you. And the funniest thing about that is it's true. It's so true. Because Alviarin cannot stand Elida. She thinks she's an idiot. I mean, Elida is an idiot. Alviarin's not wrong. But Alviarin's like, nope, would never be a dark friend. Actually too dumb. Do you think Elida would be as bad as she was if she never interacted with Thane? Yes. I think Elida is one of those deeply twisted people who thinks that she is justified in all of her horrible actions. Trying to remember, what did we see of her before Thane? They met in that first scene in Camelin. They met in Camelin. She had the foretelling about Rand, and she basically goes back to the tower of, you know, kind of, we should probably do something about this kid because things aren't looking too hot, which, you know, at the time you think, oh, she's a red sister. She probably saw something about him channeling and wants to do something about it. I mean, we know that eventually he'll start channeling because i mean it's kind of a given because you know they tell you basically chapter one like hey 
it's you. You're the one that's going to save us all. And then she sees it. I think the next we see of her is when the girl's already at the tower. And she is, she basically kind of keeps dropping in on them because Elaine's there and she likes Elaine and stuff like that. Because she spends a lot of her time trying to get Elaine back. But she's vile in a new spring. I mean, only a monster. Because she beats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she beats Moiraine in order to get Moiraine to channel better. And she's a horrible, horrible person to Moiraine and Swan. It, she's just, she's vile from start to finish. It, like, just awful. I, God, I hate Elida. A lot of people don't read New Spring until after the Winter's Heart. So at that point, you already greatly dislike her. It doesn't change how she's written. No, no, it, it absolutely does not. And you are right. She's a vile, horrible person. But we don't really start to see that until they depose Swan. Yeah. A lot of the sisters are kind of having an ego. Because they can channel. You know, we see that in Society of the Aes Sedai. I can channel, so I'm better than you, is the headspace of a lot of sisters. And Elida's got it extra bad. She's an absolute megalomaniac. The other reason I love this scene is because it's really the culmination of, like, all of Egwene's journey. She stays calm under being literally beaten with the one power, um, which is she's absolutely earned from all of her training as a novice and then as an accepted, and also from all of the wise ones. Um, Gosh knows those wise ones will beat you until you are black and blue (laughs) um, if you do not do what they want you to do. And then also it's her just like asserting, really asserting her power as Amarlin. I've definitely credited this scene with her being able to then unite the tower and bring it back together um, and keep the tower hole more or less during the Sean Chan attack that comes pretty shortly thereafter and just like to see it's like I'm like oh my baby's all grown up look at her do the thing uh, it just makes me love I I love her already but it made me love her all over again yeah that's like the moment she truly became Amarlin not that she wasn't before then but it's when she truly truly started to act like Amarlin and believe it mm-hmm. I think the big growing up point for her, like right before she travels through Teleron Riode to get to Salidar in like the night is when she pays her toe back to the wise ones when, you know, she goes, hey, I'm not a sister. I'm just an office. And they beat her, as you said, black and blue for hours. And I think that for her, I think that was a like character defining moment for her of all right, I got to put on the big boy pants now. Yeah, she's like, I've got to make up for my the lies I've told. I can't call other people out on theirs until I've atoned for my own. This is one of those scenes where I'm like, doesn't have to be exactly like this in the show, but it has to be in the show. Maybe that exact line, because that exact line is so epic. This is, that is my favorite line in the whole series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, Rafe is a, as from what I understand, a massive Egwene fangirl, so keeping my fingers crossed that he's going to do me right. (laughs) (laughs) We already got that in the show when they're meeting Swan and they go, here's the most powerful channeler in a thousand years. Egwene is like, me, me. She has such pick me girl energy. That scene is hilarious. I watch Egwene Egwene when I watch that scene every time because her body language, Madeline, (laughs) I can't remember what her last name is. Madeline Madden, I think is her last name. Her body language in that scene is so perfect. It's like, pick me, pick me, straightens up, like, basically, almost like does her hair, and then just deflated, looking at Nynaeve, like, wait, you? 
And right before that, they come in and uh, Egwene bows to Swan and Nynaeve doesn't. And Egwene looks at Nynaeve like, um, um, what do I do? Do I bow? I don't know. It's so funny. <laughs> I love that scene. Those are all the topics we had to talk about today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Come back next time for our episode on Sawin. Sawin. Yeah, Sawin. Sawin. That festival, Sawin, and the origins from Wheel of Time and how we celebrate it here on Taiwan.net. Bye.